Hello, and welcome to Talking Solutions, the fourth podcast from the Association for Solution-Focused Hypnotherapy. I'm Sally Hare. And I'm Trevor Eddles, and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. Today, we're really pleased to have Guy Shannon with us. Welcome, Guy, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm I'm really pleased to be here. Guy's a solution-focused therapist, consultant, author, and trainer based in London. He was first introduced to the solution-focused approach back in the early 90s when he was a social worker, and he did initial training in solution-focused brief therapy in 1995. Since then, he's become one of the world's leading champions of the solution-focused approach, developing training for students and practitioners, writing the book Solution-Focused Practice, Effective Communication to Facilitate Change, which is now in its second edition, continuing research into the solution-focused approach, presenting at national and international conferences, and being instrumental in the setting up of the Solution Focus Collective, while continuing one-to-one therapy work and remaining connected to the field of social work. He served as chair of the British Association for Social Workers between 2014 and 2018. Guy also trains solution-focused hypnotherapists in the art of solution-focused questioning as part of their continuing professional development with the Clifton practice. Impressive. Okay, Guy, first question then. For those people listening who may be unfamiliar with the solution-focused approach, how would you describe it in a nutshell? Um, In a nutshell, uh, I would describe it as simply a way of talking with people um, that can be helpful to them, um, that can help uh, desired change to happen, you know, people to resolve problems, to move towards their goals, simply a way of talking. It, it started in the world of therapy. Um, and what's therapy? It's simply two or more people sitting down and talking with each other. So it's an approach that any helping professional, any person actually, um, who talks with others, maybe talks with themselves, you can use it for self-help, uh, can use. Um, and um, in solution-focused practice, what do we talk about? Well, we assist people or encourage people to talk about um, what they hope for from the talking. I suppose most traditional therapies, um, the starting point is what's, what's the problem that people have come with? Um, so in solution focus, the talking is more focused on the people's hopes from the talking. And then we help people to describe what they would be like and what their life would be like if their hopes were realized. So it's a future focused approach. Um, and as well as being future focused, it's also strengths based. So we, we also help people talk about how they are already moving towards the futures they want and the abilities and skills and strengths they have so that are helping them to do that. So it's, it's, it's about talking, talking, helping people talk about their hopes, um, the futures they would like to move into and their strengths and abilities, anything that they're doing that's working for them already that might help them to continue moving towards the futures they want so that's maybe quite a big nut but that's it in a nutshell it's a bit yes yeah, it's, it's a good warm-up though isn't it <laughs> thank you for, it's a really good way of describing it I think I mean looking back to those early days you know how did adopting a solution focused approach benefit your social work clients you know how did it differ from the more traditional problem focused approaches yes it's a great question I think it benefited the people I was working with in, in all manner of ways. But what one benefit came from the benefit to me and to my colleagues in my social work team um, in having an approach that we felt we could use. 
and that gave us some confidence. Well, certainly speaking for myself, mm. um, I went away and did that training course in 1995 that you mentioned yeah. um, and came back feeling I had an approach here that was usable because it's flexibility and because one conversation can be helpful. So I was working in a duty social work team where there was lots of crisis-based work mm. and it was difficult to, to get into planned you know, weekly programmes of work. So solution-focused practice, it can be useful in one conversation. So it was, it was usable. It was mm. something that I could offer. So I, it gave me greater confidence I had something to offer. Um, and that, I guess that confidence translates and people notice it and so um so, so that's one thing um secondly it 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 helped me to see the people i was working with my clients service users in a different way um because of the assumptions of the solution focused approach that people have got abilities and strengths um and that we focus on their own ways of moving towards the, the futures they want rather than us as the professionals coming up with ideas and ways. So it actually, in, in one sense, it took the pressure off. I realized that using this approach that my role wasn't to come up with solutions. Um, in fact, the name solution focus can be a bit misleading because it can make it sound like as the worker, you've got to come up with solutions. It's not about that. Um, so it's about helping people focus on what they're doing that's working for them. So helping people focus on their ways of uh, making changes. Mm. And so that helps people to realize that they do have abilities to make changes. Um, so my focus shifted, my focus shifted from one, from me coming up with answers to assuming that the people I was working with had that within themselves and were already doing something towards even someone in the sort of the worst situations and often to get through to social workers, people had to be in quite difficult, yeah. dire situations. So. So one example, but hearing someone's problems, it can be disabling. You can think, oh, wow, those problems are so big. What can I do to help? And that's, So one question I learned to start asking was having acknowledged how tough that problem was, how are you managing to keep going? Mm -hmm. you know, what, what have you been doing this past week that's kept you, that's, that's kept you going? And someone might, and th those questions can be hard to answer. I also learned that questions that are hard to answer are often good questions to ask. <laughs> So I just, how are you managing to keep going? This person who was coming to see me or I was going to see them in their home, probably thinking that they, they weren't keeping going at all, that their problems were overwhelming for them. And suddenly they're confronted with a question like that, a shift in thinking. Mm. Okay, that problem's really tough. Yeah. How am I keeping going? So people often said, I don't know, but I think it, that might've been accompanied by a little shift in thinking. Yeah. Hmm. So all manner of questions like that, seeking for exceptions to problems. Um, someone who felt that life was bad all the time. There's an assumption in solution focus, there's always exceptions to problems. Yeah. And so we search for them. And um, someone, th there are times in the day of the most depressed person when they feel slightly less depressed, even if you wouldn't use the word mm -hmm. better. Um, and when you help people to spot those times, then you start asking questions like, what did you do differently when things were a little bit better or when things were less difficult for you? So I started to ask more questions. And I start, so I think this was also accompanied or led me to listen to people more closely. Because if the solutions or if the ideas, if the changes were going to come from the people I was working with rather than coming from me, mm -hmm. then that made me ask questions, 
of the people I was working with and listen very hard. Um, and so I learned to do something which we call listening with a constructive ear. Based on the assumption that people have got strengths, based on the assumption that there will be exceptions to problems, based on the assumption that people will have hopes from talking with us. And so we, we start listening for those things. And you can, so someone might say, I've had a really tough week. I've hardly been out of the flat at all. And when you listen with a constructive ear, the word hardly mm. jumps, out, jumps out at you, which suggests they have been out at least once. You wouldn't come rushing in and saying, wow, you said hardly, you must have been out at least once. Isn't that great? So you wouldn't be talking like that. Um, you'd be acknowledging how tough it was and say, it sounds like you might have been out on one occasion. It, well, yeah, I had to go to get my repeat prescription. Well, okay. And it's been difficult to go out. And you managed to do that. And you, you might follow up with, how did you manage to get yourself to, to be able to do that? So there's a mixture of, the whole approach is about, is about talking. What do we do when we talk? Well, we, we have to listen to each other. Because so the solution-focused practitioner asks questions. And we want our questions to connect with what the person is wanting and what they're saying to us. Um, so it calls for very close listening. So um, I think the people I was working with, hopefully they would notice that I was listening to them closely. And the shift in my focus and my attention from the sort of overwhelming problems to the exceptions to the problems, what people hoped for instead of the problem and what people were managing to do, even if that was you know, to get through the problem, the shift in my thinking led to me ask those questions, which I hope help people to shift their own thinking and to see themselves differently, you know, as people who could do things you know people label them mm. yeah and so seeing people as people with agency so i use the word agency a lot these days yeah. a lot of people that social workers end up seeing they feel they've got no agency that they can't make any difference in their lives they can't a parent struggling with their children and living in poverty and they're living in all, all sorts of external problems there's nothing i can do there's nothing i can do about it i can't cope and it feels like that but um Everybody will have agency, including the person with the most difficult problems. And so I think we help. So using this approach, help people to you know, just to, to think differently about themselves and to therefore feel more hopeful that they could make changes. Mm, radical change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Yes. Um, moving on to the next question, then. How would you persuade someone who's maybe tried other therapies with differing levels of success to come over to the solution focus side right so and that's the question is about people who are seeking therapy for themselves as opposed yes. to persuading yeah well <clears throat> I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't try to persuade them is the short and simple answer um just as as a sort of a side that connects with this the, the sort of version of solution focused practice that i use um is perhaps ultimately the most what I would call non-instrumental one. So when I'm seeing a client, I'm not trying to get them to change. So I'm not trying to persuade them to do anything. Um, I'm simply asking them questions that will help them to describe um, possibilities, to describe their hopes and to describe what they're doing that's working and what they might notice if things were getting a bit better. Um, I'm not asking questions like, what do you need to do to make things better? Even that question is saying to someone, you need to do something. So when I'm, when I'm working with service users, I'm not trying to change people. I'm not, so I'm not trying to persuade them to do anything. Um, so shifting that thinking to, um, well, to the person before they see 
a therapist or before they see a solution focused practitioner, I wouldn't want to persuade them. I think that that's maybe where resistance can come up. If someone feels that someone's trying to persuade them to do something, like we can resist adverts on the telly. <laughs> I'm not going to sort of cable to, <laughs> to buy that product just because you've got nice marketing. Um, there was a book, was there, called The Hidden Persuaders? Or yeah, Alex so Packard. Alex Packard. So, yeah, um, that's a nice connection that I've just, thank you. Um, so, but no, I would just be straightforward about it, I think. If somebody was, I would describe what it was. I think there's been some research where, I believe, where that suggested or, that outcomes from therapy um, are helped, improve, when someone um, has some awareness before they start the therapy of what's going to happen. You know, of, and so I encourage people to read the Q and A on my website, on my homepage, um, just to find out about it. I'll explain about the approach, and I'll just leave it as it's an offer. You know, um, I mean, I could tell people. I also say it's very, it's likely, or I say it's very likely to help um, because it does most of the time. Most therapies actually help most of the time. That's what the research tells us. So I'd let people know that, and um, and I might well say. I say I might well say it depends on the, the specifics of the conversation, you know, what I end up saying with someone. But I might say um, when solution focused practice is helpful, it tends to be helpful relatively soon. It's not a long term approach where you have to go through a year and you have to go through pain to get the, you know, or you, it's, it's, it's not helpful for everybody. But where it is helpful, it tends to start seeming, feeling and being helpful relatively quickly. And the research, the research and our practice experience suggests it could help anyone. So there's no sort of categories of person or type of problem where it's been shown never to help. So it seems to me it's an approach that it is worth trying. Um, it's, um, it's, it's likely to help. It might not. Um, but if it's going to help, it's, it tends to you can see the benefits fairly quickly. Um, so trying one, of, you know, trying one or two sessions um, on that basis. Would seem a sensible way forward but i wouldn't go as far as saying that to someone that is a sensible way forward because that's starting to get to persuasion um so back to the so in a nutshell to sum up um i wouldn't try to persuade i would simply describe the approach to say it may well be helpful it's based on the figures it's likely to be helpful but you know it's not going to work for everyone and, and just let the person decide yeah interesting okay let's try your next one then how can lay people bring the solution-focused approach into their lives today? Yeah, that's a great question. Because um, there is, yeah, there's, it's a simple approach. Um, Steve DeShazer was one of the main developers of the approach, a, a brilliant therapist over in the, the States. And with his team or the team he worked with and his partner in Sukinberg, they were an amazing couple. They were actually personal and professional partners. They were married, Steve and Insu. Insu had moved from Korea to the States in the 50s to study pharmacology. And I think both Steve and Insu got masters in social masters in social work qualifications and then became therapists and they met as therapists. And with a team of therapists, they set up the um well, the original center where this approach was developed. And Steve DeShazer was fond of saying it's simple, but it ain't easy. Um, so working with people, it's not always, you know, it can be deceptively difficult to use. At the same time, the ideas behind it are simple. The structure and process are simple, which means that's partly why the thing I said earlier about it being flexible and usable. So when I was a social worker, I found I could use this. 
And so I think the same goes with people, as you know, lay people wanting to bring some of the ideas um, into their life. And um, and one thing people can do perhaps is just shift attention, shift focus. A lot of us are even solution-focused practitioners. A lot of us are problem-focused. A lot of the time, we get sort of oh god, this is difficult. And um, there was a wonderful, just to illustrate this and how we can maybe shift, how one person shifted their attention, uh, a little story I came across, quite an amazing story earlier this year, because it came from, uh, it came from Ukraine. Um, and and there was a, there's a solution-focused practitioner working in the organisational or business world called Victoria Spashchenko. And she, I read a little article she wrote um, um, about her use of solution-focused practice and her training in solution-focused practice, and she'd run a, a and um, she ran a training course for people working in business managers, and she was mentoring one of these managers and talking about the approach and the training after the course. And this manager, maybe a chief executive, but you know, a sort of high up manager like that, was saying said something like, um, you know, she really liked the course. And said, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult. I'm working out how to apply it in my work context. Um, but one thing I have done, and something personally I've done, is I've sort of noticed, you know, that I'm focusing on problems a lot of the time, just in my head, you know, um, just think. And I've caught myself doing it. And so I, she started to, I think, routinely say to herself when she caught herself just focusing on a problem. It could be at home, you know, just in her everyday life. Okay, so it seems like you don't like what's happening. What do you want instead? And so she, this was sort of self-talk. So just catching oneself. And she said, this had been really helpful. And I think this has started to be helpful with colleagues in her organisation. Um, so trying one thing, you know, um, notice, noticing. So just, um, if you're fixing on problems or fixating on problems and then just what do you want. Acknowledging that, it's quite important to acknowledge. You know, even to ourselves. Okay, so I don't like this. What's happening? What do, what, do, what do I want instead? And then that helps us to start to look forward. You know, um, so there's similarities in shifting attention. I think to people keep gratitude diaries. Mm -hmm. You know, so at the end of a day, I think if you write down three things you're grateful for that day. I, I once I've read that there's some research suggested that has better effects for depression than Prozac, something like that. <laughs> um, so writing down three things. So that, I think that's so that's not. That wasn't invented by solution-focused practitioners, but there's lots of connections there. Um, so just so that because what if you do that? If you write down three things you're grateful for at the end of the day, you've got to pay attention. You've got to think back mm -hmm. over your day and pay attention to something that you were pleased about, something that you were grateful for. So I think just setting out to consciously notice what we're wanting instead of problems, and also things that we've done that we're pleased for, mm -hmm. about, or things that we're grateful for. Can I mention one more thing? I'm not sure how long I'm taking. Yes. Yeah. So just another simple idea from, yeah, it's worth mentioning because when I teach solution focused, um, this is one technique or one tool of the approach that people, beginners tend to use um, perhaps most easily or most, most readily. And it's scaling questions because it's just such a simple idea using naught to 10 scales. So, in, so, in solution focused practice if someone came to see me and i said what are your best hopes from coming we start off with their hopes and someone might say i want to feel more confident you know i'm lacking in confidence so at some point in our conversation or our conversations i'd set up a scale where i'd say think of a scale between naught and ten where ten is you've got all the confidence you're hoping for and naught is the opposite and where are you now on that scale 
Any, any answer above zero leads into very nice solution-focused conversations. Imagine someone says three on that scale. Well, if they're at three, they aren't at zero. There's something different happening. There's something better than zero. So, so there's, it's very tempting for the next question to be, what could you do to get to four? Let's help that person move up the scale. The next question really is, or should be, what's different that being at three compared to being at zero? What are you doing differently to be at three rather than being at zero? And what are you noticing about yourself to be at three? What have others noticed about you? There's a whole range of questions that you start to make into conversations with people. And um, sometimes working with clients, people come back and can remember a mother and daughter who were a teenage daughter at loggerheads struggling with each other. And we use scaling questions. And we, they came back to see us again. I've been working with a team perhaps in my social work setting. And um, we ask, what's better? So when we meet people again, we tend to start off showing, being interested in progress. And this mother and daughter has started to make things better. And so one question you'd ask then is, how have you done that? What have you done that's helped? And one thing that the mum said was, uh, well, I've started using the scale that you use with uh, Amanda. I started using the scale at the end of her day, school day. And it's been really helpful. So it's just it's just something so simple about people aren't phased by being asked to think about a 0 to 10 scale. They come an idea. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, so this mother had been using that scale with her daughters. We can use scales on ourselves. I think it could be an, an, an add-on to the gratitude diary. Mm. Um, you think I'm struggling with an issue at the moment. Let's think about a scale, how I've got how I've done with this today. Naught is I've given up and 10 is I've solved this issue. And if you're thinking about it and using a scale, you've not given up. So they can't be at naught. It's good. That's a good place to put naught. Naught is I've given up on this. 10 is I've resolved this issue. Mm. Where am I? Well, I'm at three. Let's write three things down that make it three and not zero. That's like the gratitude diary. Mm. What a scale then adds to that is tomorrow, if I was at a four, what might I notice about myself? And maybe just write one thing down. So that's like the gratitude diary mm. with a little bit of future focus added on moving mm. up the scale. Yeah. Um, so thanks for the question. I hadn't quite thought about that until <laughs> this question. Um, that, that could be connected to the gratitude diary, but just adding a sort of future focus. Mm. And that's back to solution focus in a nutshell. It's always a mixture of these two things, looking at progress towards something that's wanted and then looking at what a bit more progress would look like. Mm. And it's amazing how making those small changes in thinking can lead to big change kind of over time as you get more used to thinking that way and not going down our sort of hardwired roots of negative forecasting and actually making those small catching ourselves yeah. and taking it on the, the big changes that it can make. Very much so. And that was one of the main principles of the original, the team I mentioned earlier, Steve Insel and their colleagues. And in their one of their major papers they wrote back in 1986, which sort of announced the solution-focused approach to the world, they started off with a set of principles or assumptions of the approach. And a small change is often all that's necessary you know, in the therapy. Mm. was one of the main assumptions. And so, and that's a good thing for us professionals to sort of think about. We're not trying, you don't have to sort of create big changes. And that's why it can be quite short-term, the work, mm. because you can help people start to make small changes and then they get on with it under their own steam. And big things can happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really interested in how you're developing the solution focus message to embrace kind of activism, taking it out of the clinic and into the community with your solution focus collective and the manifesto. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Um, yeah, there's maybe something in the air because a number of people got interested in this around the same sort of time. Um, I was at a workshop 
in a solution-focused international conference in Frankfurt in 2017. Mm-hmm. And somebody offered a sort of a discussion-based workshop on solution-focused practice and politics, you know, and how can we use it? Mm-hmm. And so, and I made, and at that time, I was, I think you mentioned I was the chair of the British Association of Social Workers. Uh, and that was for four years, 2014 to 2018. And one thing that I and colleagues um, in that organization did at that time was some campaigning. And we, we were campaigning um, against austerity policies. You know, social workers can see directly the harm that they cause to their, their service users. And um, so we were campaigning, and um, and that, and so that had, that was very much in my mind when I attended this workshop about solution focused and politics, and um, and the discussion gave me an idea for um, it's a little bit like self help that you touch, you know, ask about how lay people can use it, yeah. um, how we can use it in campaigning and activism. When I'm a therapist working with a client, then the central question is me asking the client what are your best hopes from this therapy? So I'm asking the person that's wanted seeking help, quite rightly, they're at the center of it. So I'm asking them, what are your best hopes? You know, it might be more confidence or getting less, whatever it is. So I thought, ah, when we're campaigning, we could ask ourselves the question, what are our best hopes from this particular campaign or from this action that we're taking? Yeah. So we can start, because you can, and in fact, lots of campaigning is solution focused in that sense. We, we go around chanting, what do we want? Yes. We want this, you know, yes. When do we want it now? But often when we're campaigning, we're talking about what we don't want. We're, we're protesting against something. So we can focus on what we do want and start looking at um, what's giving us confidence that that's possible. But that's another, that's a nice sort of way into questions about strengths and abilities and what's working. What tells us that it's worth campaigning about this? What tells us that we can, you know, that, that this can happen? Um, but that, so that was that, the biggest idea for me, I think led to the Solution Focus Collective, which I and colleagues formed, um, and the manifesto was, I think, summarized in this, in this shift from um, let's focus on our best hopes for campaigns. And so in a sense, it's like self-help for a group of people. Mm. It's not, not to be self-help, but it's, it's thinking about social change is needed. You know, the world isn't right. You know, the social injustice, environmental injustice. And um, so change is needed. Well, hang on, we've got this great approach that, you know, we, we think is a great approach, solution-focused practice. We tend to use it with individuals. And yeah. so um, maybe it can be used for social change as well as for individual change. So th- these are the things that came together. Um, and so, yeah, it's a developing idea. Uh, we come across um, climate cafes recently. So there's, there's groups using psychological therapy-based approaches to help people talk about their fears about the climate change, climate anxiety. So we've been developing, just to give you one example of what yeah, yeah. people in the Solution Focus Collective have been doing, developing a, um, a sort of solution-focused approach to climate cafes. And um, so that people are quite rightly we're incredibly anxious about climate change. But why wouldn't we be? It's terrible, you know, the thing that's going on. And um, and so and people's anxiety needs to be addressed, acknowledged. Our anxiety needs to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Thinking of the solution focus sort of shift, we actually called a workshop that we delivered um, to fellow solution focused practitioners mm-hmm. introducing our idea uh, from climate anxiety to climate agency. And um, and we developed a sort of series of solution-focused style questions to, to assist people to talk 
about their fears about solution focus, yeah. about climate change, mm-hmm. uh, but also about what they're you know, what they're feeling able to do about it. Mm. Uh, and using scales to move from feeling I can do nothing to actually feeling I've got agency. There's something I can do, you know, as part of this. Um, so that's you know that, that's that's sort of work in progress. Mm. Uh, we've 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 run a few solution focused climate cafes, and um, so and you know people have um, seem to be found them helpful. Yeah. That sounds really exciting. Oh, we can change the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, we can, we can. This, um, well, I came across another great quote recently. Well, I came a line in a book by a Palestinian academic biologist, uh, Mazin Kumzie. Kumzie. If anyone wants to Google him, it's a fascinating person. Q U M S I Y E H. Mazin. M A Z I N. He's a he, was, he worked in the States for many years in universities. He's now back in Palestine uh, working as a biologist. He's also a human rights activist. And he wrote a book about um, you know, human rights in Palestine. And he said, I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to push in the direction of mm. human rights, or maybe greater social justice. I'm not sure the exact quote. That seems to be really helpful because the change in the world is a big ask, right? <laughs> It's a big world and there's lots, there's lots of need changing. But he, so when I read that, I thought that's nice. And it suggested the sort of scale idea. I'm not trying to change the world, just trying to push. And you, you could add, yeah. gently push in the direction of more greater mm. human rights or social justice or both. Mm. And that's what I think that's, that's, so I've taken that quote into the Solution Focus Collective, maybe to help us think about what we're doing, just help to push more in that direction. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Um, I guess leading on from what you've just said, then my next question is, what's next for you? What projects are you working on? Well, um, just linked to what I've just said um, very directly. Um, I mean, I've, I've got the possibility, I'm sort of a bit hesitant to say it in case it doesn't come off, but it seems quite possible slash likely. I might be doing a PhD in the near future, but which will be, I'll be very pleased to be able to do it because it will make sure I do do some research that I've now got a, concrete idea what I'd like to do and it's it's about it'll be about focusing on on solution focused practice for social change and the possibilities thereof and in particular the role and usefulness of hope of focusing on hope of hope and the future in activism for activists and the guy Mazin Kumsie that I just mentioned reading his book was one of the um, things that's inspired me to do this um, and, and, and this guy talks about optimism and he's living in a very difficult situation, you know, in an occupied territory um, under occupation. And he's focusing on optimism. I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, so a research project that focuses on the role and potential usefulness of hope and focus on hope and the future in activism. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm another project I'm involved in is linked and I'll be focusing in particular on Palestine with Palestinian activists and um, that's been a, an activity of mine for some years now um, and with a psychologist and therapist who's based in Beirut we're, we're looking to develop um, a project offering health and well-being support to social and political activists uh, in Palestine um, and there might be a link there with the research that I just mentioned. Um, 
yeah there's there's other things i'm doing that are quite different um sort of technical bits of research and solution focused practice um well I'll, I'll mention one of them because it might just help us to go back to solution focused practice in a nutshell you know um i put that earlier well, one way i put that earlier was that it's always a mixture of focusing on the future the, fu the future that people want and focusing on um what's working already how people are moving towards that even in small ways in progress so the future focus and progress focus i don't think that anyone's researched is there an optimal balance of how much we focus on the future how much we focus on progress and with a colleague um my colleague steve freeman we're doing a little research project at the moment uh, where we've yeah we've um with a number of uh, clients who have sort of consented to be part of this we've done a number of therapy sessions and then interviewed those people who you know the clients of those sessions about their thoughts about the balance in those sessions between um, future and progress so we're currently at the stage of just looking at the interviews with those people and that data and just thinking about does it matter how much we focus on the future how much we focus on progress towards it we believe that it's useful to focus on both but so, so maybe a little bit technical, but that's just also just summing up in a nutshell. Solution focused is focus on the future, focus on progress. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'll be really keen to see what your results are for that, whether whether it doesn't matter or whether you've got an 80-20 rule or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. would be fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, that's kind of coming to the end of today. So thank you very much. I, I think the word brilliant describes uh, today's session. That, that was really good. It was really interesting. So uh, thank you very much. And I, I hope people listening to the podcast find it informative too. Um, so for everyone else, that's it for this podcast. Um, I hope we've given you some food for thought. Yeah, thank you, Guy. I found it inspirational and exciting as well. You know, where we're going next. Next time, we're looking forward to talking to Loretta Broning, who wrote Habits of a Happy Brain and many other books. So that'll be an exciting one. So for now, it's goodbye from our guest, Guy Shannon. Goodbye. And thanks very much again for the invitation to, to do this. I really appreciated it and enjoyed it. Oh, it's pleasure. Useful. All useful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's goodbye from me, Sally Head. And it's goodbye from me, Trevor Reddles. See you so next time. You. Bye. Bye. <laughs>